0: Go ahead and read our scripture for today out of 1 Corinthians 13. Um, one thing is that as I was listening to that song and kind of just thinking about this scripture because I've read through it a few times this morning, um, I really began to think about how we're reading about the attributes of love, right? And it's amazing to think about when we read this how we can apply these to our own lives. But one thing that I want us to also focus on as I read it is how. God is love, and how these are the attributes of God's love towards us. And I think that song was really reflecting some of these attributes. So let's go ahead and read, starting in chapter or verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not de- delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love.
1: All right. Thank you, Jacob. You guys can be seated. Let's start off with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you today expectant, hoping, and, and waiting for you to work this morning, Lord. Work in our hearts, Lord. Open our eyes to, the, to your truths, to who you are. Um, show us your kingdom, Lord. It is all around us. Uh, there are hints everywhere, just foretastes of your presence and your power, Lord. Show us that today by the power of your Spirit. Lord, give me your spirit as I seek to communicate these truths. And I pray that you would give all of us your spirit as and your ears to hear these things and, and put them into practice. Father, we thank you for Christ and his uh, sacrificial love for us. And that's the only reason we can even approach you and, and, and pray to you like this this morning. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, this... Sunday marks the beginning of Advent, as we talked about earlier, and so we are going to start a series about um, the different weeks of Advent. And this week is about hope. All right, hope is uh, is a word that I think we can toss around a lot. Um, you know, we can hope that it snows. I hope that I get this present for Christmas. Um, but I want to I want to try and formulate our our idea of what hope is with, with this definition and it's hope is an anticipation for a future that is better than a present. And it's not biblical. Hope is not simply optimism based on circumstances, but it's a choice to wait expectantly for God to bring about a better future because we're certain of his love for us. I just realized I don't have one of the bulletins up here. Could I grab one? Thank you. So yeah, we we are choosing to wait expectantly for God to bring about a future that is better than the present. And that choice is based in his love for us. Now, um, in the Old Testament Hebrew, there's a word, kava. How's that sound? Kava. It's a fun one to say. Um, and the, the literal translation is to wait. Um, but the root of the word, kav, is, means cord. And if you can imagine like a rubber band or or a cord that is stretched out to the point where it's going to break, you know, a picture of a rubber band, somebody stretching out a rubber band, you're kind of like squinting, you have your eyes back. It's a tense anticipation for something to happen, something big. And that's where the root of of hope comes from. One of one of the words for hope in the Bible. And again, it's it's more than simple optimism in bad circumstances. It's it's based on a person, the person of God, who he is and what he has done. And so we're going to look at what he's done. If we look at the Old Testament story, we can see God's fingerprints of love, faithfulness, and provision throughout. Um, God repeatedly makes a way for his people when there is no way. Let's look at a couple examples. We have Abraham and Sarah who were 90 and 100 years old, and God promised to make them a nation uh, uh, of people, but they had not had any any kids yet. They hadn't had any kids, and, um, and so God made a way. Sarah conceived, Sarai conceived at 90 years old, Um, God made a way when there was no way. The Israelites, when they were uh, allowed to leave Egypt, Pharaoh changed his mind and he sent his army of soldiers into the desert to chase after them. And they were surrounded between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. And God made a way when there was no way by parting the Red Sea and they walked through on dry land. Also, David and Goliath, David, a, a young teenage shepherd, walks out onto the battlefield and defeats a giant warrior named Goliath. Um, A surprising outcome in all these stories. I can only imagine the tense anticipation in the moments before any of those things happened. And so we look back. God's past faithfulness motivates our hope for the future. We look forward in hope by looking back. And, as the Old Testament narrative develops, we see prophecies being made about a great rescuer who is to come and save God's people from their sin, and through those people, the whole world for hundreds of years. The Israelites hoped and prayed for the Messiah, the promised one, but even they misunderstood how God would bring about redemption when Jesus came, He surprised everyone. He came as a baby born of a virgin into a blue-collar family in a podunk city called Bethlehem in a stable where the only people to meet him and celebrate his birth were shepherds, the lowliest of low in that culture. Then he lived a perfectly normal life for 30 years. And when he began his ministry, he started gathering followers, preaching about the kingdom of God and how it had come. And again, he surprised people. This kingdom wasn't the kingdom that they expected. He surprised them with his message. He said, The greatest person in God's kingdom is the weakest, the one who loves their enemies, serves the poor, forgives those who wrong them. The one who wanted to be exalted in the kingdom of God needed to be humbled. And he did it with a surprising method. He not only preached, about this kingdom. He lived it. And he cared for the outcasts, the sinners, the sick, the unclean. This ultimately led to the greatest act of sacrificial love. Jesus willingly giving his life, dying the death that we deserved in exchange for his perfect standing before God on our behalf. And what do we know came to pass? The most surprising outcome. On the third day, he rose from the dead and demonstrated his power and victory over sin and death. He later ascended into heaven and gave his disciples the mission of making this kingdom known throughout the world because one day he would return to reveal the fullness of his reign. He gave them a future hope. There's more to come, he said. You know, you might be saying, well, that's a great story, but where does that leave me? Um, I'm just trying to get through today. How does something that happened 2,000 years ago give me hope? Um, we live in a world that is in desperate need of hope. Um, I would recommend this book to any of you. It's uh, by John Eldridge and it's called All Things New. And I'm gonna cite some statistics that he has in here but he's uh, to demonstrate our need for hope as, as a world and as a culture. Some of those are that suicide rates are the first or second leading cause of death in young people across the globe depending on the country. Antidepressants are the second most prescribed drug in America. During the war in Afghanistan, we lost more soldiers to suicide than we did to combat. We're in desperate need of hope. All you have to do is spend one day walking the halls of a children's hospital, visit a third world refugee camp, observe abusive homes, war-torn villages, lives destroyed by drug abuse and overdose. Any one of these things is overwhelming. And then what about the unmet desires of our own hearts? Things and people that were but are no more things that may never be. Life is full of serious and real physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. And so how is God going to make all this right? Where is our hope? How will he redeem all this suffering and loss in the world and in our own lives? And I think there's something deep within all of us that longs for wrongs to be made right. And I think that thing that, that we're all desiring is restoration, for things to be made again as they once were in the beginning, in the garden, when God made Adam and Eve, he made the whole world, and he said, this is good. And at the very heart of God's plan for restoration, we need to come to realize, is Jesus himself. In Revelation 21.5, at, at the very climax of the Bible, are Jesus' words, Behold, I am making all things new. Restoration is happening today and Jesus is the central figure. The cross is the defining moment of God's plan for restoration. And although it happened 2000 years ago, it is alive in us today. We sang of our living hope. My good friend, uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, some of you think that's funny. I don't actually know him. I just, uh, really like him. Uh, Jeff Vanderstelt Stelt uh, says the gospel doesn't just bring about forgiveness of sins and save us from hell. The gospel of Jesus Christ empowers us to live a whole new life today by the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, after Jesus rose from the dead, he said, I'm sending you my spirit to live in each one of you. And we know as we read through the New Testament that if we have faith in Christ, then we have his spirit living in us. And in fact, he said, you will do greater things than I have done with my spirit in you. And so our salvation, I think a lot of times we look at uh, what Jesus did on the cross and we think he paid the penalty for my sin and he paid my entrance into heaven. And so that's a convenient truth. I'm going to get my ticket punched and Lord, I'll see you on the other side. And and we don't really understand that the gospel is, is still saving us today we have a past present and future salvation and there's three ways how that works out one we have been saved from the penalty of our sin we know this you know this is one of one of the more uh accepted truths of the gospel that Jesus his substitutionary atonement if you want to get technical on terminology paid the penalty for our sin Romans says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He paid the penalty of death. And so we have been saved from the penalty of our sin, but we are also being saved today by the power of sin in our life. As we allow God's Holy Spirit to come inside us and reign over our mortal bodies, uh, we are being saved and being made into the image of Christ day by day. Uh, we, sanctification is our, our past salvation and, uh, Bible students help me out. Um, justification, thank you, is our, is our ongoing, uh, salvation throughout life. So we have been saved by the the penalty of sin from the penalty of sin. We are being saved, um, from the power of sin in our lives, and we will be saved ultimately by the presence of, from the presence of sin in eternity when Jesus returns, or we leave this earth. And as we experience the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in and around us, we are getting a foretaste of what life in perfect unity with God will be like while still living in the midst of a broken and sinful world. So as believers in Jesus, we receive his spirit, but we're still in a sinful body amongst sinful people in a fallen world. It's, uh, we call that an already not yet reality of God's kingdom. And all around us though are hints of a future hope not yet completed, not yet fulfilled, breaking into our lives today and reminding us of his love for us and his promise that he is making all things new. So what are some of these hints? Something as simple as laughter, I think, tells us that God values enjoyment and life with him is full of joy. Home and our longing to have a place is a hint at our lifelong displacement, that we are strangers, aliens, and exiles in this world, and there's something much better in store which can only be fully satisfied and will be fully satisfied in him. Friendships give us a foretaste of the kind of mutually edifying kinship we were made for that can only be enjoyed to its fullest potential apart from sin and centered around Christ. Work, the satisfaction that comes from a job well done reflects our partnership with God and the ongoing cultivation of creation. Intimacy, vulnerability that comes from being fully known and fully loved. God gives us a taste of it in romantic relationships which require real risk but can produce a shared joy which is a picture of God's love for us. The church is his bride. He is the bridegroom. Nature. Observing the beauty of God's handiwork gives us a sense of awe and wonder that only hints at the new creation. Yes, even creation will be redeemed, Romans 8 tells us. The spirit of God living in us is perhaps the greatest foretaste of the restoration that God will accomplish across all things. These are all hints of what complete joy, home, belonging, friendship, work, intimacy, wonder, and life with the Almighty God will be like. Yet at the same time, they're mere reflections. They're dull and dim, often distorted by sin. We inherently realize that there should be more to it than this, and there is. I want to turn your attention to uh, the reading for today. Starting in verse 8, it says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And that last verse right there gives us the picture of a mirror. And uh, mirrors today are pretty clear, let's be honest. Like you can get a pretty good picture of yourself. But I'm guessing that mirrors back then were not factory made and perfect Perfectly designed, and I think for for us, it's almost like looking at a mirror after you get out of a shower. Right, you can kind of see your figure, you can see a little bit of color, but you can't really depict who that person is. And uh, I think that gives a really good picture um, of what this verse is talking about. Is that our understanding of things right now is 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 basic, and it's not the whole picture. Um, and the sad part is, sometimes we're very content with that blurry picture. You know, we we don't really care to believe that something's better is coming because this is good enough. Um, some of us enjoy life, and as we should, but we don't really have a desire to see more, to see greater. C.S. Lewis wrote in his essay, "The Weight of Glory." It would seem that our our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I think that's it. So many of us think that We're chasing something better than what God has to offer. But if we only understood that what he has is so much greater than anything here, we would realize that we're far too easily pleased and that none of these things offer what they promise. There's so much more. I think that just gives us a picture of of what it will be like the first time we can clearly hear the voice of Christ, to see his face, to know fully his love for us. I think it's a feeling that will just overwhelm us in an indescribable way that there will be laughter and hugs and lots of joyful tears. I thought it was really telling that the boy said, I've never seen those colors before, but I kind of knew what they were. And I think that describes what we're experiencing here today that God made a way for us to know him by his son and that's a wonderful and simple truth but we can't fully comprehend it. He's given us enough to understand it, to surrender ourselves to him. When we look at verse 12, it says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. God's love for us, as as great and wonderful as it is now to experience, it's so far beyond our comprehension. It's more profound than we can know. But there will be a day in which we know fully and we see clearly this love that he's made known to us in part. And like the boy, I think we'll say, Jesus, I knew what this was, but now I really see it. Now I really know it. Now I really hear your voice. In verse 13, the end of this chapter that is all about love, it says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Our hope is rooted in God's love for us. True hope in Christ is not simply mustering a feeble optimism. It's a faith rooted in the truth of God's love for us. How do we know God's love for us? He gave his most prized possession, his very own son, Jesus Christ, as a gift for us so that we might see and hear and know him as he truly is. This is not the action of a God who just wants us to know stuff and do stuff. He wants us to know him intimately and to experience his love, his past, present, and future Restoration in and around us. Life with God begins today. Hope in Christ is real today. Restoration is happening today. Now, whether you're in a season where life is pretty good or you're in a season that's been really tough, I hope this is good news for you. Because even if it's bad, it's gonna get so much better. And if it's good, the goodness that you're experiencing right now can't touch what God has in store. There's hope in the person and work of Jesus. We're going to remember that hope today as we take communion together and we come to the Lord's table. Um, this is a, um, a physical demonstration, representation of a spiritual reality of what Christ did for us. And as we, we take the bread, we're going to remember his life, his, his life that he perfectly lived for us. And the, and the cup reminds us of his death, that he sacrificially loved us and gave himself for us. And when we fall short in our life, we can remember that God doesn't look down on us and see our sin. He sees Christ's perfect life. And when we fall short, we can remember and hope in the fact that Christ's blood paid the penalty for our sin.